Well, good morning. It is good that we can be together. And we do miss a number of brethren who are unable to be here because of health reasons. And perhaps some of them also because of the weather and the roads. Uh, but it's great to be with you and appreciate you being here. And glad that we can be together and sing together and pray together and encourage one another with God's word. God the Father and God the Son sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And this promise of Jesus Christ was fulfilled. It was completed. His apostles were truly guided into all the truth. And that truth has been preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Spirit continues even today to convict the world through that word, through this inspired revelation, which we are told by the Hebrew writer is sharper than any sword that a man can make. He seeks to persuade men. He seeks to persuade us with the divine proofs that would produce the fruits of faith and repentance because God cares because God loves the world of men he is deeply grieved when men reject his son when men reject the savior of the world Because that Savior is also the light of the world, the light of the world who exposes our wickedness, though we may not want to see that for ourselves. But that is a blessing from God that he enlightens us through the work of the Spirit and the work of his Son, Jesus Christ, and shows us how our sins lead to condemnation. So truly, man does need convincing Man does need convicting lest they die in their sins. And the work of the Holy Spirit also focuses on the aspect of convicting the minds and the hearts of men of the world about righteousness. And so we will focus this morning on that thought again. The idea of the work of the Spirit convicting the world not only of sin but also convicting the world of righteousness. God is righteous. And there's a number of places you can turn to illustrate that. One is found in 1 John 2.28 where he says, simply says, God is righteous. But also in describing Jesus Christ in John chapter 7, John chapter 7 verse 18, it says, he who speaks from himself you know, he says, and seeks his own glory, but seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, so Jesus is talking about himself, he is true. And he goes on to say, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And so we think about God the Father and God the Son, how their character is righteous, their deeds are are righteous their words are righteous their judgments are righteous and there's a number of passages you can turn throughout the scriptures old and new testament that 
makes those bold statements and reveals the character of our creator to us. Since Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, as we're told in Hebrews 1.3, therefore, he is also the revelation of righteousness. Everything about Jesus, everything about who he is, everything about what he did is a revelation of righteousness. This word is used frequently in the scriptures. It's a broad concept. If you define it, it simply means it is that quality of being right or just. Some old, some, an older way of saying it, right wiseness. And generally speaking, when you open up the scripture, scriptures and look at what it says about righteousness It's going to be associated with God. It's going to be associated with his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his holiness. And it will amplify and accentuate the idea that God is not indifferent to evil. God is not indifferent to sin. And God is not indifferent about what is right. But our text this morning that we are trying to highlight is found in the Gospel of John chapter 16, where it says that the Holy Spirit, you know, as he would come and guide the apostles into all the truth, would convict the world not only of sin, but also of righteousness. And there in verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because, because I go to the Father... And you, lo- lo- and you no longer see me. That's an interesting thought, is it not? He said, I will convict the world of righteousness because, Jesus says of himself, I'm going to my Father, and you will no longer see me. Jesus returned to his heavenly Father in heaven is proof is evidence that righteousness resides in Christ. Because he's gone to the Father and because we no longer see him or the apostles no longer saw him, he says that would be part of the convicting of the world, not only of sin but also of righteousness. You know, we, we know and we understand and we believe Jesus has come from God. He came from the Father. This Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary. He came from God, and that is why he is described as Emmanuel. God with us on earth. While Jesus was on earth, he was Emmanuel. He was God with us. He was the incarnate word in the flesh. And when people saw Jesus, they saw Emmanuel. They saw God with them. God walking with them. God talking to them. God sitting at a table with them. That's what they were seeing. They were seeing deity in the flesh. As Paul would write in the Colossian epistle, you know, the fullness of of deity dwelt in him bodily. And so when he was here 
on the earth. Jesus did the Father's will. He taught the Father's doctrines. He proclaimed and declared the Father's commandments. And we see, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus profoundly and boldly stating his relationship with God and what that meant. And so there's a number of passages you can glance at as highlighted there in the PowerPoint. But for example, in John 5, verse 19, on that particular occasion, where he says to the audience, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Emphasizing the relationship, that oneness that he shared with the father because he is the son. In verse 30, he continues in his lesson here. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Over and over again, Jesus, in one way or another, declared his identity, and that identity is intricately connected with his relationship with the Father. Over in chapter 8, in verse 28, he says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Jesus is deity. He is the Son. And he came from the Father, and he walked on earth, and he is therefore the Son of God. And that's exactly what the apostles preached over in Acts chapter 2. As they declare Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Lord, to be the very one that can and the only one that could save them. For example, in Acts 2, verse 22, after explaining how what, as the events are unfolding, that this was a fulfillment of the Joel, a pro, uh, uh, the prophecy by Joel, in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazareth, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonder and sign, which God performed through him in your midst, just as yourselves know. It was visible. It was seen. He said, you took him, you killed him. But verse 24, but God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. That is the power of death. And then verse 33, therefore have him been exalted to the right hand, of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Simply want to emphasize the point that John is making here, or Jesus is making here through the writings of John. He says, I will convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. His return to his Father's side. His return to his father's glory is evidence of righteousness. That's a, that's a deep thought. He says, I will convict because of this event, this unfolding of, of things. And so you think about Christ. His life is a life of righteousness. His teaching is righteousness. His death is pertains to righteousness. 
And even his resurrection emphasizes the righteousness of God. The Hebrew writer emphasizes the the power or the significance of Jesus entering in behind the veil or into the tabernacle, the holy of holies, the one not made with man's hands, emphasizing his return. So when, when we openly begin to analyze and analyze Jesus' victory and Jesus' exaltation, the true purpose to convict of righteousness will be seen. For example, where is righteousness? What is righteousness? Jesus says the spirits can evict the world of it because I'm going back to my father and you will no longer see me. The apostles were not only eyewitnesses of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus in bodily form post-resurrection. And they declared that. That is part of the power of the gospel, that we have eyewitness testimony. They saw that Jesus conquered death, and his conquest over death is truly a victory. But also, they saw Jesus begin his ascension. They saw that. Not only did they see Jesus walking alive after being dead and buried for three days, they also saw, as we're told in Acts chapter 1, his ascension, his return, him going back to the Father. They saw a portion of that with their own eyes. As you see there in chapter 1, in verse 9, after he said these things, he was lifted up. While they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. They saw this. Wow. So first, they saw him alive. And second, they see him ascending and then disappearing out of their sight. Of course, the angels then, you know, speak here, you know, to in verse 10, and they say to the apostles there, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. One day he's coming back and he will descend in the clouds and he will not to be walked on the earth again. But to complete his last task. You think about this idea of no longer seeing Jesus, the apostles, no longer seeing Jesus, how that would be part of the persuasion, part of the conviction that Jesus has completed his task. He's completed his mission on earth. There is no more for Jesus to do on earth. He's done it. That's why Paul could write in Galatians chapter, chapter 4, verse 4 or 5, about the fullness of time. And the idea, you know, the fullness of time, you know, he was born of a woman and he was born under the law. Why did all that happen? 
Well, he says, verse 5, so that he might redeem those under the law, that he may receive the adoption of sons. Righteousness. That's part of righteousness there. Or over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where we're told that we, through a true knowledge of him, a true knowledge of Jesus Christ, of the Lord himself, through that knowledge, we have received what? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, you see, we've received everything, everything, you know, that pertains to life and godliness. That's through the true knowledge of him, but that's what you have. Divine power has made it possible that we can have everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory. And so turn now, we are partakers, we are participants you know, we are receivers of magnificent promises so that we, are, we become partakers of his divine nature as well. Divine righteousness ultimately summed up, culminates in Christ. And men are not and cannot be righteous outside of Jesus. Where is righteousness going to be found? It's going to be found in the one who returned to his father after completing his father's will. And the eyewitnesses no longer saw him again. Righteousness is in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit work is designed to convict us of that. That if we want to be found righteous, we must be found righteous in and through Jesus Christ. And if we want to know what righteousness is, it's going to be in and through Jesus Christ. And if we want to know what righteousness will do and what righteousness will accomplish, it's going to be in and through Jesus Christ. And so in a more practical way, in just a more practical way, what does Jesus' righteousness, what does Jesus' righteousness mean for you and me. Well, in Romans, Romans chapter 3, and there's a number of passages you can turn to to talk about this subject. This is a, an enormous subject. But we're going to look at four points here that illustrate what does Jesus' righteousness do for you and me. The righteousness that the Holy Spirit convicts us of because Jesus has returned to the Father and he's no longer seen on earth. Well, one is that the righteousness of God is fulfilled. It is attained. It is satisfied because Jesus was a public propitiation for man's sins. That's what it means for you. To be convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit sword, to be convicted of righteousness, because Jesus was here, but he's gone back to heaven, means that he is now your propitiation. That you and I actually have someone who has propitiated for our sins. In verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Drop down to verse 25. When God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Righteousness was and righteousness is upheld by Christ and through Christ so that God can justly justify the sinner who has faith in Jesus and in Jesus' blood. We have to have faith in both. Not only that Jesus is, but also we have to have faith in the blood of Jesus and everything that that means and stands for. And so because of Jesus, because he is the culminating summation of the revelation of divine righteousness, we now have a propitiation made available to us. Romans 5 talks about, continue, once again, this is being, you know, as the discourse of Romans continues to present the case in defense of the gospel, he says, so then as through one transgression there resulted combination to all men, but but even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. So Jesus, one act of righteousness, so that, so that he became the propitiation for sinners because he was the lamb that atoned for them so that God could be just to justify a sinner, they'd be convicted of sin and righteousness, could be found justified, reconciled and sanctified, all because of what Jesus did. That's what it means for you and me. What also it means is because of Jesus' obedience, you and I, us sinners, are made righteous through our obedient faith. Staying in Romans, Romans 19 is 5 verse 19 says so for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners even so through the obedience of the one many will be made righteous so there you got the obedience of the son to the father's will and because he righteously obeyed and carried out his father's will then we too through and obedient faith to him and in him are made righteous because of him. Over in chapter 6 of Romans, Romans chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, That's your past. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Someone is your master or something is your master. We are not our own master. None of us are. We think we are. We're not. There is someone or something who is a master over us. 
And the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is it? Who is our master? Or what is my master? Because we are told here in the 16th verse, but whoever we obey, that's who our master is. God's righteousness, though, God's righteousness offers us the gift to change our course. God offers us the gift, the opportunity to change our course of direction. He offers us the opportunity and gift to change what or who reigns over us. Righteousness makes that available to us. And because Jesus died, because Jesus now lives to God and with him eternally, as you see over in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we see that we can die to sin through Christ. Because of him and through him, we can die to our sins and what? And we can be made alive. That's righteousness. That's from God. In 1 Peter, we'll very quickly turn over there. In talking about the example of Jesus' suffering and how he endured that suffering and entrusted himself to his father to complete the task that was given him. In verse 24, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, so what was the ultimate purpose of this? What was the objective? What was the goal that Jesus had in mind? That he came and did the father's will to atone and propitiate. He says, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. There's some benefits that comes from being instruments and vessels of righteousness. A couple of those are found also in, back in Romans chapter 6, verse 22. And when he says, now have him been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Because of righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, and because the Spirit can convict us of righteousness, we can be found righteous. Not of our own doing, but because of the righteousness of God made available to us through Jesus Christ. Now, the righteousness of Christ ultimately is the standard. It is the measure by which we must measure ourselves if we're going to be approved by God. Any attempt, any attempt for us to establish our own righteousness as the rule, that is doing what's right in our own eyes, that will never attain the requirement of righteousness. We will never be found righteous before God if that's our rule, our measure, simply doing what's right in our own eyes. And Paul warns about that over in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, talking about some believers and worshipers of Jehovah who had a zeal for God. They were zealous about their devotion to God, but 
It was all about establishing their own and not the righteousness of God. But the righteousness of Christ is something that has to be pursued, though. As students of God's word, you're familiar with Matthew 6, 33. There in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is urging and admonishing us to prioritize. He says, there's some things you need to seek first. Things that need to be at the top of your list, your priority list. He said, you need to first seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Righteousness is something that has to be sought. It doesn't just happen in our life. We have to seek it. We have to pursue it like Jesus tells us. But secondly, it has to be practiced too. It's something that you have to do. It's not just some of this concept we talk about. It's something that we need to find. What is it? And then I need to respond to it. I need to you know, act upon that. And so, for example, over in 1 John chapter 2, 29, where it says, you know that he is right. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who also who practices righteousness is born of him. We want to be born of God. We want to be born of Christ. What well, says that includes us practicing righteousness. Well, whose righteousness? Well, not my own, but rather Christ's righteousness, the Father's righteousness. That same point is kind of repeated again over in the third chapter, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So what does Jesus' righteousness mean for me and for you? Well, it means that I've got to look to God's standard of righteousness. And that's the measure that I need to seek to use and follow and do. But then finally, the one who is the goal or the end of righteousness, he is the one ultimately that's going to judge everyone by that righteousness. The scriptures are quite clear in emphasizing that God always, has always, and will always judge righteously. And so likewise, the Son will do the same. He has always and will always judge righteously. Unrighteousness, though, cannot inherit the eternal blessings of Christ's kingdom. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that, that point is made very plainly to the Corinthian saints. Reminds them, he says, you know, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived, and begins to list a number of transgressions and sins that fall under the description of unrighteousness. So you think about that unbelief, irreverence, idolatry, all kinds of immorality. All of those things are lawlessness, and anything that is unlawful is an opponent to righteousness. It stands against it. It's unrighteous. It is not righteous. But we're promised... Over in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, particularly there in verse 8, as Paul is penning his final words, 
as the Spirit directs him to do so. He speaks of his own end and the promise of that end and what he has to look forward to. But in saying that, he says, it's not just for me, it's for you too. In verse 8, he says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. There is a day that's coming in Paul's future that he is going to receive a crown of righteousness. And who's the one who decide that? Well, the one who is said to be the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who. But that's not where the verse ends. Because Paul goes on to then to say this to all who would read these inspired words, and not only to me. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It is righteousness, God's righteousness, that's going to reward the keepers and the finishers of the one faith. And Paul was one of those saints of God because he was redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of that righteousness, there was a crown that was reserved for Paul. But he says, but it's not just for me. It's for all believers, obedient believers of Christ it's for all those who keep the faith, who run the race, and who finish that course. They, too, receive that crown of righteousness. So the Spirit was sent into this world to the work that he was sent to do to convict the world of righteousness. Because Jesus, right now, is in heaven with his father. And he has kept and fulfilled and completed his father's will. And that righteousness can be yours as well. There is such a thing as absolute righteousness. It doesn't reside in me doesn't reside in you, that we are not the origin of absolute righteousness. But it does exist. There is a righteousness that is an absolute. Where is that found? That's found in Christ. And that is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And the beauty of that is you can know that. And I can know that righteousness. We can know that. And we are assured that that righteousness which reigns in Christ and through Christ has made it possible that you can be with him one day in heaven. So the question is, are you right with God? Are you right with God? You can be. You can be right with God because of what God, the Father, what God the Son and what God the Spirit have done. 
You can be right with God. But you have to believe it. You have to believe in them, and you have to believe them to the point that you would surrender your will to theirs and be cleansed by the power of the blood. Will you make the decision today to be right with God? Because that's what God longs for, you and for all those who bear his image. If we can help you any way spiritually to return back to the Lord as a child of God or to put on Christ in faith and penitence and baptism, we invite you, encourage you, please come forward while we stand and sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>